0: I mean, when I was here, I didn't play tennis. I was quite used to to swim. So I'm sitting just by the war memorial at University College School, which is where I was from the age of about 13 to 18. Right next to the tennis courts, looking over the school. It brings back many, many Memories. I've come back here because, and this is something I remember really quite well, in uh, 1962. This is where I spent a great deal of time during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The crisis lasted 13 days. I remember very, very well the news, they had a moving diagram showing the Russian ships moving steadily towards the American flotilla which was there to stop them from getting to Cuba. And we were given to understand that could be the start of a nuclear war. And I remember talking to friends about it. We couldn't really believe, perhaps because we were young, I was 16, that the end of the world was going to come. I'm Martin Wolf, and this is episode three of my podcast series, Saving Democratic Capitalism. It's important to remember that in the early 60s, the Soviet Union seemed an immensely potent rising power. The general belief was that its economy was growing faster than the US. It had successfully launched just a few years earlier Sputnik, which took the Americans hugely by surprise. It had a vast land army in Germany, poised, it was felt, to attack And famously, Khrushchev said about that time that we will bury you. And it didn't seem implausible. So there was a very strong feeling that democracy was really threatened by this immense Soviet juggernaut. And it was quite easy to feel alarmed. It's interesting the ways in which it's similar to and different from today. In this series, I'm looking at how we are once again living through a period of history when democracy is in decline and autocracy in the ascendant. Last week, I spoke to the Stanford academic, Larry Diamond, who has dubbed the great rolling back of democratic norms over the last 15 years a democratic recession. This week, I want to look at the other side of the equation the autocracies. And to do so, I cannot think of anyone better than Anne Appelbaum, who is an expert on the erosion of democracy, above all, and quite crucially, in Central and Eastern Europe, about which she has written brilliantly, notably for The Atlantic.
1: The difficulty with describing what's happening is that it has a variety of different aspects. So there's one aspect one could describe as not the recession of democracies, but the rise of autocracy, the growth in power and influence and economic size. I mean, some of this is just a reflection of the growth of the Chinese economy of China, of Russia and of other autocratic states. And attached to that, I think, and we often underestimate this in the democratic world, is the rise in the prestige of the Chinese model, that other countries find to be appealing and which they seek to emulate. Sometimes they do it openly because they see China has made its poor wealthier. Sometimes they do it more cynically as a way to get Chinese investment or maybe Chinese surveillance technology. But in any case, they do it and they align themselves with China or in some more rare cases with Russia, perhaps Belarus, because they see those as offering either for the elites or for the country even a better model. And that was something that was not certainly in the most of our lifetime, certainly from the 1980s, this was not the case. You know, the Soviet Union was a declining, impoverished, weak state that eventually fell apart. And so you didn't have a model of an attractive autocracy, which you now do. So that's one part of it. I said the second connected to that is a rise in connections between autocracies. So the, the autocracies now, they are not a block and they are not an alliance, but they see themselves working together and they have some common goals. They have in common a dislike of their own democratic oppositions, of democratic activism and democratic language, and they will work together to push those things down in other places. So, you know, Iran offers its drones to help Russia defeat Ukraine, and Russia, in turn, is said to be helping Iran put down its demonstrators. They share surveillance technology. They share kleptocratic techniques They share propaganda tactics as well. They use very similar ways of manipulating narratives and holding power that way.
0: So this resurgence of autocracies and the way they're collaborating with one another is a big and important part of the story. But it's not all of the story. The other part is the degradation and backsliding in some of the world's most established democracies such as even the US and the UK.
1: You're right. And some of this is not unconnected. The autocracies have, you know, we again underestimate this, but they're very influential inside democracies. They're influential in the business community. Their propaganda narratives are influential. But in addition to that, we also have weakening of democracy itself. And some of this is reflected in the election of openly autocratic or anti-democratic political leaders and parties, um, whether that's Trump in the U.S. or whether it's, you know, the AFD in Germany, a party that didn't win a majority but is still a very influential party in German politics. And then in some cases in Poland or in Hungary, you have the election of openly autocratic political parties that seek to create one-party states in their countries through altering the political system, and in some cases, the voting system. And you could also talk about Turkey in that sense, and you are also rapidly being able to talk about India in that sense, too. And sometimes even simply through not recognizing norms that many had assumed until recently were automatically understood everywhere. You know, the need for independent judiciary felt like something so obvious that it didn't need to be explained. And yet it turns out that in countries as disparate as Poland or Mexico, you've had democratically elected politicians attacking the judiciary, seeking to undermine the judiciary, and doing so in ways that don't seem to bother a large part of the population. And so it's become clear that assumptions that were made about democratic norms were wrong, that most people either didn't care about them or didn't understand them, and that has made it much easier than many anticipated for cynical or power-hungry leaders who would like to change the democratic systems to suit themselves to alter them.
0: I suppose, given what's been happening recently, you might have added Israel to this list.
1: Yes, Israel is clearly a member of that same club and in some ways equally surprising because again, a country that was founded around the idea that we're a democracy and that that's an important part of who we are in this part of the world, that suddenly seems not to matter to a lot of Israelis. I
0: was thinking as you set out the current appeal of the authoritarian model, back to the 30s, when there were two, in some ways I might say even more impressively authoritarian models embodied in major states, fascism, particularly Nazism, and the Soviet Union under Stalin. And both of these models had very willing and enthusiastic followers in Western countries. On the left, famously so, with many people greatly admiring the success of the Soviet model, and on the right, with many people admiring what Hitler had done and his success in creating the rebirth of the German economy from the Great Depression. Would you say those parallels actually have meaning now?
1: You know, I think it's clear that now as then, there are some people for whom a more autocratic model of society is appealing, but there aren't two models in that same way, and they aren't as clearly defined. I mean, even if you just start looking around the autocratic world, you have nationalist Russia, you have Maoist China, you have theocratic Iran, you have Bolivarian Venezuela, you have peculiar models like Burma or Belarus. None of them has a clear ideological appeal, except maybe to tiny groups of people in the Western democracies. You know, there's a very small group of people on the far right who admire Putin's Russia, Uh, maybe maybe an even smaller group of people in America who admire the current Chinese system and, and seek to emulate it, but they're really fractional. It isn't as if there are sort of ideological poles around which people are gathering Strangely, the country whose system, which isn't even, can, can't really describe it as an ideology, but whose tactics, rather, and whose policies are most admired on the right in Western countries is probably Hungary, which is a small country of no real economic significance or influence. And yet the model of an elected leader who has undermined his judiciary and who's willing to engage in open culture wars against universities, against the media, against a real or imagined idea of the left, to use anti-Semitism through attacks on the supposed influence of George Soros. This is actually a pattern and a tactic that is admired in a lot of Western countries. It's not so much that Americans want to be hungry, but they look at the tactics, they look at the assault on democracy that has worked there, and they seek to use it I the best example of this is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's launched this very strange culture war in Florida against some children's books, against the Disney Corporation.
0: It is wrong for a teacher to be telling a young student that they may have been born in the wrong body or that their gender is a choice. I can tell you that the parents in the state of Florida were very happy Uh, that we took those stands. Uh, The media was not happy about that. And there was a little business that you may have heard of in Florida that also wasn't happy about that, named Disney.
1: And the idea is to run a kind of constant culture war that attracts and interests people as a way of keeping them part of your political team.
0: I'm not backing down one inch. We run the state
1: of Florida. And so it's more as if people in the West have learned tactics rather than that they have learned or admire an ideology. I mean, there's no clear ideology on offer that is pulling people in. It's more tactics, attitude, behaviors. I mean, and actually that's the same elsewhere in the world. So I don't think it's so much that, you know, people in uh, Zimbabwe admire Chinese Maoism and they seek to adopt that ideology. It's more that the leaders of Zimbabwe admire the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has been able to stay in power so long, and so they're interested in Chinese surveillance technology, Chinese propaganda tactics. You know, it's more about shared technologies even than it is about shared ideas. I don't see that there's an ideal of autocracy that has the kind of appeal that Soviet communism had in the 1930s, or even that Hitler's fascism had in the 1930s.
0: What's missing in the account that you've given so far? What's missing is a sense of why now? What's been going on that explains the rise of autocratic practices, admiration for autocracies, and the loss of belief in democracy in countries like the U.S. and U.K., almost the canonical examples of consolidated democracies. And yet, as you pointed out, and I've written about recently in my own book, there's a very widely recognized reality that this belief in democracy is gone. Now, you pointed to the example, and that's the one way in which the parallel with the 30s sort of works, that China has established that autocracy sort of works But the interesting point is basically none of these autocracies have tried to replicate the bits of the Chinese model that actually do work because they don't understand it and they don't seem to care very much about performance in that way. So even that attraction must be limited. So I think we have to answer why this is happening. And I think there are three ways of accounting for it, which one can imagine. One, which I think is very much present in your own writing, is that a number of somewhat disappointed power hungry individuals mostly rather mediocre realized that this was the bandwagon to get on for personal advancement i mean nothing more characteristic of humanity than personal ambitions and you describe some of these people extremely well the second complementary view is that we have gone through Vast social and economic upheavals in the last half century, the transformation of the post-Soviet empire, and including in Central Eastern Europe, the upheavals caused by Reaganism and Thatcherism, the free market, globalization, and all the rest of it. And crucially, social transformations associated with women's rights, homosexual marriage, what is sometimes called transgenderism, and so forth. All these upheavals have made people desperate, ordinary people, for stability. And that has been anchored in a desire for social stability. And the reactionary politicians have seized upon that. And then finally, there is a view, which I suppose I've advanced, that the downward mobility economically, and so inevitably, because economics is so important socially and culturally, of the middle class and the upper working classes caused in significant measure by economic failures, the Great Recession and so forth, has exacerbated this deep distrust of the established institutions of our societies and the people who run them and the desire to have something different led by a friendly demagogue, a friendly autocrat who seems to be on their side. I would emphasize, I don't think these last two explanations, social and cultural and economic, are mutually exclusive, but I, there is a question of primacy. In any case, what's your story about why are we seeing this now in so many places, including absolutely crucially, the historic bastions of democracy, the US and UK?
1: So I think that the unifying... Word here that links together those three aspects that you've just described is disappointment. Disappointment with the way society has turned out in some cases, disappointment with the kind of cultural and particular, I don't know, sexual and social changes that you've described. In some cases, it's personal disappointments. um, And this sometimes explains the behavior of particular individuals who join on to an autocratic political movement or leader because they see it as a way of achieving success or in some cases getting revenge on people they don't like. In America, we call this owning the libs, you know. And then there's a component of economic disappointment as well. I think it's difficult to overgeneralize. I mean, we come down to an argument about whether the cultural factors or the economic factors are more important. And I know from your book and from your writing that you think the economic factors are more important. And I don't disagree I just think that they're hard to separate and focusing on economics makes it hard to understand particular places. And as an example I'm gonna give you is Poland, which is a country that over the past 30 years was an outstanding example of economic success, and it was not merely the success of the richest people. I mean, there, it is true that some people got a lot richer a lot faster, but if you look at the society overall, Almost everybody was more successful than their parents and certainly their grandparents. And so you cannot tell a story about economic failure. You need a different explanation for Poland, which is a country where an openly autocratic political party, one that now uses a kind of combination of state media plus the prosecutor's office to persecute and go after its political enemies in a very ugly manner, familiar from autocracies rather than democracies. The only way you can explain the attraction of that is through some kind of cultural moment. And the best way to explain it is through disappointment and anxiety created by rapid change. And I saw this in Poland in the 1990s that for a lot of people, rapid change itself, whether it was change for the better or for the worse, was disorienting. So if you grew up in a small town or even a large city in Poland in the 1970s or 1980s, The world of your childhood was completely gone by the 2000s.
0: An LGBT plus rights march in Białystok, eastern Poland, descends into chaos as counter-demonstrators attack. (laughs) Participants in the march were subjected to verbal and physical violence and the police did nothing.
1: So you couldn't recognize the places that you came from your children had a childhood that seemed totally alien to your own. Friends of mine, very successful friends of mine in Poland, have said this to me, that their their children's interests and possessions and behavior are so different from their own that they hardly recognize them. And you've been through that kind of extreme rapid change. And that was a change on all of us, economic, social, demographic. For some people, even if they're richer personally, at the end of it, they experience a sense of loss. You know, they fear, you know, we have lost the world that we remember and then they develop this very powerful sense of nostalgia you know and that you know we want it back you know we actually need to destroy or attack or undermine the institutions of the present in order to bring some of that back and the appeal of that very powerful nostalgia is something you see in in Poland but you see it very powerfully in Britain in the US and you see it elsewhere as well it's almost as if the pace of change and i would say in particular the changes in the way that we get and process information. Most of us now live in a world where we're constantly changing news, constantly new information, and in many democracies, constant sense of conflict and contradiction. So all around us, people are yelling at each other the whole time. And the sort of distracting, different versions of reality are available at the top of a keyboard. You know, I can hear one version of events you know, on one channel, and then I can hear exactly the opposite on another channel. And this sense of living in a time of chaos and contradiction, I think, leads many people to desire one homogenous solution. You know, we just need one leader. We need one voice. um, We need to make all these other people shut up. And you can hear, by the way, some of this on the left as well as the right. We need to agree about reality and we need to make our opponents silent because it's only when we have this kind of silence that we feel reassured. And And I'm not saying that everybody feels that. Some people are invigorated and excited by a world in which there are many new opportunities in which things are constantly changing. For other people, that's very threatening. And I think that it's the growth of that kind of nostalgia that is part of the explanation for, as I said, the rise of autocratic and sort of openly backward-looking political parties and movements that talk about the past as a thing that needs to be brought back and revived.
0: I think we have actually a large agreement because disappointment and nostalgia are very much themes that I also write about. This raises a couple of questions. The first is actually a genuine puzzle. I tend to the view which has been best captured in Robert Gordon's wonderful book on the history of economic growth in the US, that for the West, and I'm really talking particularly about Britain, America, and Western Europe. The second half of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century until 1960, 1970, through all the economic political upheavals, was a period of simply staggering economic and social change. A society that had been predominantly rural and agricultural became industrial and urban. The new working class was formed as a major political and economic force. There was tremendous social conflict, and in some cases, this led to authoritarianism or strengthened it. This is clearly true. But the dominant political demands of those times and ultimately successful ones were for widening the suffrage, which was sort of basically achieved in most countries in the first half of the 20th century with enfranchisement also of women the universality of political rights, and ultimately the emergence in different forms, the New Deal in America, social democracy in Europe, and a completely new compact between the society and the economy and the state. And the upheavals, I would say, were socially, economically, really fully comparable to what has hit us, at least, in the last half century. So I'm genuinely puzzled by the the reality that the response to the first set of shocks, with the very important exception of the interwar years, but the, the First World War and the Great Depression played such a huge role there, was essentially towards emancipation and democracy. And now it's the reverse. So I'm really interested in whether you've thought about that and have a sense of why our great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents weren't as nostalgic. Maybe it was because they knew what they were coming from was so horrible.
1: So one is, you're right, the past experience was different. I would say, secondly, I mean, we just talked about the huge appeal of Soviet communism and various different versions of fascism in the 1930s, and you could argue, certainly, fascism was openly about nostalgia and Communism was a little bit different, but it certainly talked about smashing the present in order to get to a better future. And so I think that while America and Britain avoided both of those two traps, they were extremely powerful. We had very important political movements in both those countries. And, of course, all of Europe eventually fell victim to those movements one way or the other. And so I'm not sure that we did avoid it. And I would say also... In the present, there is a new element, which is the way in which the nature of information also changes these conversations. Even in the 1930s, you didn't have this experience of constant new information coming in all the time. Extremists weren't able to speak to you into your ear or into your cell phone 24 hours a day. You might encounter them at a meeting on the street corner, or you might pick up a pamphlet, but you didn't have the constant presence of what we used to call extremist ideologies all around you all the time. And I really do think that the change in the information sphere makes a big difference in how people perceive the world. You know, in a way, it's a revolution as significant as the advent of radio, for example, which by the way, was at the time also considered to be a threat to democracy. I mean, the two people who first really understood how to use radio one of them was Hitler and the other was Stalin, uh, understood the power of having your voice inside people's homes and why that was different from how politics had been done in the past. And the radio was also understood, particularly in Britain, as posing a challenge to democracy that has to be overcome. And if you look at the founding of the BBC, it was deliberately created in such a way that it would unite different parts of the country, that it would unite the different classes, that it would be a kind of single voice, that it would create a kind of public sphere where everybody would be able to discuss and debate within a set of democratically decided rules, and that democracy would continue because we would have this shared radio space. And that was openly the ideas behind it.
0: Broadcasting is a development With which the future must reckon and reckon seriously. Here is an instrument of almost incalculable importance in the social and political life of the community, in affairs national and international.
1: Not only do we not have that now, you know, we have almost the opposite. You know, we have a kind of total shattering of the public sphere. We have people living in wildly different echo chambers where they're not able to communicate with one another. We have this extreme polarization, which in effect means that people don't respect one another enough even to debate one another. And it also means that when you have the victory of one half of the polarized society, the other half doesn't recognize their right to rule. I mean, democracy depends on a kind of, when you win, you have to preserve all the rules in the way that you found them so that your political opponents might defeat you four years from now. And if you lose, you have to allow the other side to rule in the hope that four years from now, you will be able to beat them again. If you lose the belief in those rules, and if you think that your opponents ruling even for four years could be the end of your civilization or that they're traitors or thieves, then it's very hard for you to accept those rules. And so the level of polarization that we have now, I think, is just much more extreme. And it's made possible by technology in a way that it wasn't possible before.
0: When you talk about Poland or Hungary, these are not countries that have enjoyed any real experience of stable, prosperous, functioning, democratic rule over lifetimes. These are countries for which the successful period you rightly describe after 1990 was a relatively brief interlude. And as you also said, it created vast changes. So I find the fact of a backlash not terribly surprising. I also recognize that historically, autocracy is the normal way of doing things. It always has been. So democracies are relatively recent and obviously fragile. So we can't be really surprised, and we can't also be surprised that people really want a great leader, because that's basically how they've been ruled for most of the history of complex states. But I do think that the US and UK are a puzzle. I think they are very different. But in the US, the open flouting of the fundamental norms of politics, particularly the recognition of the legitimacy of election outcomes, which we have seen and embraced by the Republican Party is quite extraordinary and, to me, quite shocking, such a complete betrayal of what is really the most basic democratic norm. And now, what I'd like to move on to... Can can
1: I I just interrupt for one second? Because I have to tell you, So, as you know, I live part of the time in Poland and I also live part of the time in the U.S. And I have to tell you, for me, the, the truly amazing thing is how similar U.S. and Polish politics are. For everything you've just, you know, Poland, completely different history, different demography, different religion, different everything, different geography. And yet some of the themes in politics are remarkably the same. And that makes me think that part of the explanation has to be in new technology that's affecting people in similar ways, because there is no other reason why the United States and Poland should resemble one another at all. And yet... Um, The language of the Republican far-right and the Polish far-right are remarkably in common, and many of the tactics they've used are similar and work in similar ways. Any
0: case, what on earth do we do about it? Because if anti-democratic forces are aligning themselves with one another, they include some of the world's most powerful countries already, and the U.S. is on the brink And we haven't even discussed the possibility that Marine Le Pen will be the next president of France, widely believed by many of my French friends. So is there any hope? Is democracy finished? And if not, what are we going to do about it?
1: So um, (laughs) it's a question that needs a range of answers. I spent a lot of time for a number of years thinking about Russian disinformation as a problem. And the more we focused on Russian disinformation, the more I began to understand that that was the surface problem and the deeper problem was the division and the polarization I've just described and the destruction of what we used to call the public sphere. And so I would argue that a piece of the story is about that. And this is a very difficult thing to fix. And one of the most optimistic people I know, um, Francis Fukuyama, thinks it can't be fixed.
0: If you are as large as Twitter or Facebook or Google, You're more like one of the networks back in the 1950s and 60s, where you really have a major ability to shape the information and the way that people think about things. And I just don't think that that's legitimate uh, in a democracy.
1: You know, take that as a warning. But thinking about how to recreate public conversation, whether it's through alternative forms of social media, whether it's through some form of internet regulation by which I do not mean censorship or the creation of a ministry of truth, but just a commonly accepted set of rules about transparency of algorithms and so on. There has to be some element of that because that's one of the fundamental pieces of the story that's underlying the problem. Going country to country, there are clearly ways in which democratic political systems set up in the 18th or 19th century are no longer fit for practice. Uh, You know, ways of debating and ways of holding conversations that worked even 30 years ago don't necessarily work now. And so there's another set of answers that has to do with renovating and renewing institutions. Again, very, very difficult, especially in the United States, where you can't even think about constitutional change because it's totally off the table. But, you know, you can talk about Ranked choice voting, you know, different ways of voting that end up with less polarized outcomes. That's the second piece of the story. And thirdly, you know, I'd be interested to hear what you think. I mean, there may be an economic part of the conversation that is to do with restraining the oligarchy that we've created, especially in America and Britain. I don't know whether it's higher taxes here, you're the expert rather than me, but certainly restraining the influence that the very wealthy have on politics. In the U.S., it's now almost grotesque. I mean, the elections are so expensive. They are so easily manipulated by the donors. A member of the House of Representatives has to run an election every two years, and that means they spend almost their entire time in office fundraising. Changing somehow the relationship of money to politics is clearly a third piece of the story. A fourth piece is public education. I mean, one of the Things that we discovered in Poland when the ruling party launched its assault on the judiciary was that, as I said, very few people understood what the independent judiciary was, why it was important, why it affected them personally. It turned out there's very poor civic education in schools. And then I would add one other thing, which is the influence of the autocratic world on the democratic world. I mean, I think that pushing back against kleptocracy in all of its forms, in the International sphere, but also the way in which it affects domestic politics and domestic financial practices. Ending the influence of Russian and Chinese companies on Western companies and organizing the democratic world around the fight against kleptocracy will also be a way of reinforcing the ideas around democracy as well.
0: So I agree completely that the role of the plutocracy in the way we run our companies the way we run our economy and the way we run our politics has been corrosive. And they have found it quite convenient to form an alliance with what are sometimes called populists, but I would be happier just to call them authoritarian demagogues. But the question I have, which is really where I end with, is is it an implication of your analysis that we should essentially... Go back to the separation, if it's possible, of our economies, our public spheres, our politics from the autocratic world, and particularly from China and Russia, which would basically turn ourselves back into a siege Western world confronting a hostile autocratic sphere.
1: So I, I don't think we're going to have any choice. The separation from Russia has already begun, even to the extent that the gas pipelines that were built decades ago, well before the collapse of the Soviet Union are not working now. So the cutoff from Russia has already started. You know, China is obviously far more difficult and far more complicated. But if China stays on the course that it's on and if it continues to talk about threatening Taiwan and if it continues to, actively seek to use its companies and its influence around the world as a way of converting economic into political power, I see a kind of inevitable clash. I mean, it does not have to be a military clash. I'm not saying we have to go to war with China, and I very much hope that that never happens. But I also find it hard to see how the current relationship with China, in which we just treat each other as purely economic partners, can continue. China's military said today it's ready to fight after completing three days of large-scale war games that simulated the blockade of Taiwan. China's government has revealed a new crackdown on businesses from the U.S. and other countries. Offices of three U.S. consulting firms in China have been raided in recent weeks under a powerful new security law. And so what I hope is that business people will begin to prepare for that while there's still time. There's the rest of the world. There's India, there's Turkey, there's Africa, there's the rest of Asia, there's the rest of Latin America. I don't want to separate the world into autocratic and democratic camps, which I don't think it is separated into now. Even the autocratic world has some nuances and it's not a coordinated block and they don't all like each other and they don't all work together at all times. And so I I would hope that we would continue to be able to work and trade in lots of different kinds of places. I just worry very much, very specifically, about the relationship between certainly America and China, but probably America and Europe and China, and whether we shouldn't start planning now for some kind of strategic decoupling, if you want to use that expression, but simply some kind of distancing, because it seems to me that it's going to happen.
0: Let me just go to final question. I don't want listeners to leave thinking that you or I share A vision of despair. So, where I end is that despite obvious problems and failures, what I call democratic capitalist societies have all in all been staggeringly successful. They are the richest, on the evidence, happiest societies that have ever existed. They are societies to which vast numbers of people wish to flee to have better lives for themselves and their children. They have weathered enormous storms, and you mentioned the great crisis of the interwar era. Even 20, 30 years ago, we were looking at one country after another turning towards democracy. There was a huge explosion of democracies after the fall of the Soviet Union. So it seems to me we should have some optimism that our system can again adjust and adapt to the change economic, political, and as you stress, technological forces upon us. And I have hoped in addition that elites on both sides will recognize that they do share a tremendous interest in preserving these institutions because in any other sort of society, they're all going to be utterly miserable. Just have to look at how Putin is treating his oligarchs and his intellectuals. So surely there must be hope that we are going to be able to make this.
1: Yeah, I think the best argument for optimism is really to look at the power of democracy activism, even in the most unlikely places. I and, mean, you know, as soon as they can, the Chinese protest, you know, activists, whether in Venezuela or in Belarus, you know, when they're able to, Oppose their regimes, what they want is democracy. The appeal of the ideas remains universal because the idea of living in a society where everybody is treated equally under the rule of law and where the public has some influence over who leads it remains profoundly appealing. And we've talked most of this last hour, we've been talking about the appeal of autocracy, but the appeal of democracy also remains. And I think We live in a generation, particularly people younger than you and I live in a time where they don't remember the world not being democratic. And I think as the threats rise, you will see lots of younger people becoming more active and becoming more engaged in the prospect of rescuing or reforming our democracies. And I I see it in people younger than myself. And I'm optimistic about the appeal of the idea. You know, The idea goes on being very powerful, even when it's under challenge.
0: I agree completely. And And it is worth remembering, we did defeat fascism, and the Soviet Union did collapse. And I actually think the most interesting thing that's happened in the last year is when the Chinese people rose up and protested uh, Xi Jinping's COVID policy collapsed. So I think this great ideal of a society in which all citizens are equal, and in which ultimately power is accountable to the people is an inspiring one, and we have to believe in it, and I do. Thank you very much, Anne, for this wonderful discussion. It's been, I think, uh, quite inspiring.
1: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: That brings us to the end of this week's episode And it's also the end of the day here at University College School in North London. So what does the future hold for these children? Well, as I mentioned, the Soviet Union did eventually collapse in 1991. But it was arguably the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 that proved the high watermark for the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev backed down from the nuclear brink and would later be deposed. Meanwhile, the once booming Soviet economy became mired in corruption and stagnated. So what about now? Are we once again at a high-water mark for the world's autocracies, with Russia facing a debacle in Ukraine and China's economy losing its dynamism? And if so, what can the world's democracies do to push back? Next Saturday, I'll be speaking to someone who has first-hand experience of doing just that the former US Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. This week's episode of Saving Democratic Capitalism was produced by Lawrence Knight. Manuela Saragossa was the executive producer and Breen Turner, the sound engineer. The FT's global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.